0: Welcome to Catholic Living, a podcast that seeks to be a user's guide to the Catholic faith, where we boldly ask, what if this stuff is all true? How then should we live? This is brought to you by Xcorte at Benedictine College in Atchison, Kansas. I'm Tom Hoops. I'm writer in residence here at the college, and you can read what I write at alatea.org or ExCorde.org. Today I want to talk about home and Thanksgiving. I'm Recording this in November, which is the time of Thanksgiving, the time when Advent is approaching, the time when the Advent season and the Christmas season are approaching, and the time when people return home, where we gather around the table or around the TV, and we spend time together with our family. November begins with the feast of the Lateran Basilica in the Vatican, and I think this is highly relevant. Let me explain why. The Lateran Basilica in the Vatican has its own feast day. I think it's the only church whose feast day is celebrated everywhere in the world. This is the Pope's own cathedral. So that's why it reaches this importance. His chair is also the only chair I know of that has a universal feast ascribed to it or in celebration of it. But the Lateran Basilica is dedicated to St. John the Baptist and St. John the Evangelist, but it's not called... St. John's. It's called the Lateran Basilica because it was built where the Laterini family once lived, where they once had their palace. And I think that's appropriate. I think that a house is so significant that it can lend its name to a cathedral and that that can be something that we all celebrate around the world. So I want to talk a little bit about what the church teaches about houses and households. And I want to start with the book of Acts, because in the early Christian church, people didn't convert, often households converted. For instance, Peter encounters Cornelius and his righteous household, is what it's called in Acts. And soon he's delivering a message to the Gentiles, by which you will be saved, you and your household. Later, Paul and Silas tell their repentant jailer, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. Then Crispus, a Jewish leader, believed in the Lord together with his whole household. So households believe in the Lord, not just individuals. This, says the catechism, comes because Christ chose to be born and grow up in the bosom of a family, the holy family of Joseph and Mary. And it says the church is none other than the family of God. So it stands to reason that the church would be made up of households, those families who became believers were islands of Christian life in an unbelieving world, says the catechism. Well, if you're like me and you've gone to people's houses or you've had people to your house for Thanksgiving, you know exactly what this means. Going to another person's house as a kid for Thanksgiving was a little bit like entering a foreign country. You would see a whole new place with lots of familiar things, but everything different, right? I remember... Hearing my dad act different in this other household than he would in his household. This Thanksgiving was the first time I ever heard my dad talking about football, which is not a thing which he followed at home much. But I realized he has this whole world of thought about because I heard him making conversation with our relatives about it. You see new ways of handling the kitchen from yours. The folks in the kitchen are doing things in an entirely different way. They have things in entirely different drawers. You go out into the back with your cousins, who you sort of know and sort of don't, and you discover a whole topography that is like a new world. A backyard at home meant a very particular thing, and here it means a very particular different thing. And then... I've noticed, especially as I've grown older, when we invite people into our home for Thanksgiving, that they're like foreigners in a strange land. We often have college students who, for one reason or another, can't get home for Thanksgiving. And I watch them interact with my family in my home. And I realize, okay, they don't hate it here, but they're clearly a fish out of water. They're in a new circumstance. They'll hear Adele blasting in our kitchen while we make Thanksgiving dinner because Adele is the only singer who different generations can all agree to listen to. Uh, You hear kids running everywhere, kids running into walls, kids being shouted at, kids being dragged out of difficult spots, kids being encouraged to go outside, uh, doing different things from what that person must have experienced in their own home. So the church teaches that households are important, not just individuals, but also it teaches that your home is a light in the midst of pagandom. You know, autumn falls, it gets darker, and the lights start lighting up. You see Christmas lights, you see Advent candles, you see whole new lights appear that you didn't see before once autumn comes. Well, this is very much a sign of the light of Christian life that shined in the world and that shines today. In the pagan world, the family was nothing like what it is now. In ancient Greece and Rome, infants could be discarded if they weren't wanted. Women had very few rights. You know, when you read in the presentation gospel that uh, Anna was in the temple and that Mary was in the temple, you see that even Judaism had much more respect for women than many pagan religions because women weren't allowed in the temples of pagandom. Women had to worship their the household gods of their fathers and then of their husbands. They didn't get their own gods. Uh, boys had to follow the household gods of their fathers and carry them forward. Well, if the original Christian family was a light, to the pagan world it was in, then in the same way, Christian families today are a light to the pagan world that we find ourselves in. If you think about it, the day that makes far more money and gets far more attention in popular culture is not Thanksgiving, but the day after Thanksgiving, Black Friday. Uh, this is kind of the high holiday of consumerism in the West. And the fact that that day is so much more popular shows that we are weird. We in the Western world are weird. Weird is this acronym that's used often in academic literature, W-E-I-R-D, stands for Western Educated Industrialized Rich Democracies. And we are unlike the rest of the world. One of my favorite writers who's an agnostic I'm not practicing any religion as far as I know, Jonathan Haight writes about how research shows that weird people, W-E-I-R-D societies, are very different from the rest of the world. He pointed to a study where people were asked to write 20 statements beginning with the words, I am. Americans, he said, were most likely to list their personal characteristics. I am happy, I am outgoing, I am interested in jazz whereas East Asians are more likely to list their roles and relationships. I am a son, I am a husband, I am an employee at Fujitsu. That makes Thanksgiving hard for us. Thanksgiving is hard for us, it's a waste of time. We think that we maximize our self-actualization through pleasure, through personal enrichment or career advancement. We don't think that talking to our Uncle Harold or our cousin Ronald or our Aunt Sue is, useful to us. It doesn't entertain us. It doesn't move us forward in our career goals. It doesn't enrich us in our intellectual capacity. So we reject it. That's weird. One recent study suggested that seven in 10 Americans would give up holiday gift giving altogether if they could. Well, that's weird. Also, it means that we don't want to connect with others. It means that we're more interested in what we can do for ourselves. Being weird also puts our health in danger. The Journal of Psychosomatic Medicine says that the magnitude of risk associated with social isolation is comparable to that of of cigarette smoking and other major biomedical and psychosocial risk factors. So being alone literally hurts your health. The answer to this, of course, is community. It's building community, and the first place to build community is in your family. As the Catechism says, in our own time, in a world that is often hostile and alien to faith, believing families are of primary importance as centers of living, radiant faith. The Second Vatican Council called the Church the light to the nations, and the Catechism calls for our families to be a light to our neighborhoods, where real community shines forth and people understand, once again, what it means to be embedded in relationships. So how does this happen? The church says your home has to be a school of virtue for this to happen. You have to turn your home into a school of virtue. It's naturally this, says the catechism. The first heralds of the faith with regard to their children are the family. The home is the first school of Christian life, and it's a school for human enrichment, says the catechism. This is the place where people, it says, learn endurance and the joy of work, fraternal love, and generous, often repeated forgiveness— and prayer and the offering of one's life. Families are the place where people discover their vocations, either to start families of their own or to give their whole lives to God. We had Dr. W. Bradford Wilcox from University of Virginia speak at Benedictine College on a couple of different occasions, and he expresses this school of virtue by talking about the success sequence. The sequence goes like this. First, stay in school and earn a high school diploma. Second, get married and then, and only then, have children. That's the success sequence. And writing in the Wall Street Journal with a researcher named Wendy Wang, he wrote that at ages 28 to 34, 53% of millennials who have failed to complete all three steps were poor. The poverty rate dropped to 31% among millennials who completed high school, 16% among those who had a diploma and a full-time job, and only 3% for millennials who also put marriage before the baby carriage. Among childless and unmarried millennials, 28 to 34, who followed the education and work steps, who followed the success sequence, poverty rate was only 8%. You know, Michelle Obama also in her recent autobiography spoke about this and she would have added another step, which is stay together once you're married to have a successful life. Well, this is exactly what we celebrate in Thanksgiving. We celebrate families who have been together, who've stayed together, and who are now inviting more and more people into the rich connections that they create. Whether you believe it or not, the psychological benefits of being committed to Thanksgiving are enormous. Yes, talking to your uncle Harold and meeting your Aunt Sue and learning to like your cousin Vincent will make you a happier person because it supplants the virtual connections you fill your life with, connections that leave you empty and anxious and don't do you long-term good with real connections, face-to-face connections with other human beings that have rough edges and that expose your own rough edges that you have to come in contact with and learn how to love. That's what makes you happy long-term. Speaking of which, the church teaches that your home should be a place of unconditional love. As Pope John Paul II pointed out, the individual today is often suffocated between two extremes, the marketplace and the state, uh, these dehumanize us. They make us either a a producer and consumer of goods on the one hand or an object of state administration on the other hand, he says. So how do we find ourselves? How do we become who we are in the midst of this overbearing marketplace which is at us all the time, even through our phones, and this overbearing administrative state where experts are constantly telling us how we should live our lives? We said the place to break out of it is the family, and there's no other solution, really. You have to give yourself in love to a family to realize who you really are. This is why favorite stories throughout human history have been all about finding home. Of course, the Odyssey was all about Odysseus's journey home to try to return to his wife Penelope, The Wizard of Oz was about Dorothy in the strange land trying to make her way home. The Toy Story movies are all about toys wanting to find their way home. Beauty and the Beast is all about somebody trapped in an enchanted castle wanting to come home or make it her home. Uh, This is a very powerful pull for each of us is returning home. I personally disagree with Leo Tolstoy. There are a number of most famous first lines in literature call me Ishmael from Moby Dick. Then there's Anna Karenina by Tolstoy. The first line of which is happy families are all alike. Every unhappy family is unhappy in its own way. Well, I disagree. The happy families I know are very much varied. You have the outdoorsy family that's always hiking and always out on kayaks. You have the athletic family where everybody seems to be good at athletics and if you go over and play a game at their house you're sure to lose. There's the brainy families who sit around and talk about philosophy and can demolish me in an argument. There's the drama family that actually I have a drama family living right nearby. They are both in dramatic performances a lot at the local community theater and if you go to their house their conversations are filled with drama. Then there's board game families. There's all sorts of variety in families, but every single unhappy family I've ever encountered has been marked by brooding distance, tension, and unforgiveness, right? There's nothing more energy draining than being in the presence of an unhappy family. And this goes for my own family when it's gone through unhappy cycles in life. This goes for any of our families. What's energizing is a happy family where people have learned to forgive each other and look to each other's best qualities. What's draining and terrible is an unhappy family. So what else does the church teach about homes and families? Well, the church teaches that holiness starts in the home. The home is where the father of the family, the mother, children, and all members of the family exercise the priesthood of the baptized in a privileged way, it says. The priesthood of the baptized is what you perform in your own home. That's very exalted language that it says means that you lead the family in love and lead the family in prayer and give them on earth a foretaste of the wedding feast of the lamb. So that's pretty heady stuff. My son recently brought to my attention what the text in the Old Testament say about the Ten Commandments. In one of them, God informs the people that he inflicts punishments down to the third and fourth generation, but blesses down to the thousandth generation, to those who love me and keep my commandments. So think about this. We know that intergenerational trauma is a real thing, that the bad things that happen in your life get passed on to your children in various ways, uh, both genetically and through the way you raise them. And we've seen that this lasts to the third or fourth generation, as it turns out. What's well, also true that people are blessed down to the thousandth generation. Think about the people in your history who are the reason that you believe the faith at all. You had people who had to sacrifice for the faith, people who were persecuted for the faith, people who held on to the faith despite overwhelming odds, people who insisted on teaching their kids the faith even when their kids didn't want to learn it. Maybe it didn't happen in your direct line. Maybe it happened that you are the first Christian in your family. Well, go back to the disciple who first talk to you about Jesus Christ and go back into that person's family. And you'll see that down to the thousandth generation, Christianity has been passed on against overwhelming odds. And by passing the faith down the generations, they have contributed enormously to the happiness of your family. You know the Beatitudes, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those who mourn, blessed are the meek. Well, another way to translate that is happy are happy are the poor in spirit, happy are those who mourn, happy are the meek. And I did this little thought experiment on an article that you can find at xcorde.org. I think I published it on All Saints Day. But imagine the opposite of those beatitude dictums. So blessed are the poor in spirit. Well, are the greedy and grasping happy? No, they're empty and sad. Happy are those who mourn. How about those who harden their hearts? to the pain of others. They're not happy. Happy are the meek. The arrogant and pushy are not quite so happy. Happy are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Well, what about the apathetic? They tend to be joyless. Happy are the merciful, not the bitter and resentful. Happy are the pure in heart, not the lustful who are always dissatisfied. Happy are the peacemakers. Troublemakers are always upset. Happy are you when you are persecuted because standing up to bullies makes you heroic and giving in to bullies makes you sad. Which brings us to another thing the church teaches about home, which is that home is not enough. Home is not enough. Home is not enough to fulfill us. Home is not enough to make us happy. As St. Paul said, for we know that if our earthly dwelling, a tent should be destroyed, we have a building from God, a dwelling not made with hands, eternal in heaven. For in this tent, we groan, longing to be further clothed with our heavenly habitation. So we're not happy here, even in the best of families, even in the happiest of homes. This, I think, is the reason that when Jesus Christ gives in the gospel, when he gives a banquet, when he multiplies the loaves and the fishes, he gives way, way, way too much. Uh, Now, I guess every Thanksgiving family might be a little bit like my family now and we make way, way, way too much such that we have to eat it for days afterwards. But I'm talking about as a general rule, Jesus seems to give way, way, way too much. The Eucharist is a never ending source of grace and the tabernacle is always full. And in those stories where Jesus multiplies the uh, bread and fish, they have to pick up the fragments in 12 baskets. My own family used to have uh, a code word, we would say FHB. If we didn't quite make enough food for everybody, FHB stood for family hold back. So suddenly you'd go to get a second piece of chicken and you'd hear FHB from your sister or your mom. I am blessed with a wife who tends to make three to four times as much food as we need for any given occasion. But luckily, we have lots of mouths to eat the leftovers. But Jesus and God never say FHB, and we long for a life in a world which will not happen here on earth, where we will always and everywhere know that there is enough and more than enough. The problem is that we try to fill our hearts here on earth in a way that they'll only be filled in heaven. As Pope Francis put it in his encyclical Laudato Si, the emptier a person's heart, the more he or she needs things to buy, own, and consume. Or as Pope Benedict XVI put it in Caritas in Veritate, when he is far away from God, man is unsettled and ill at ease. Social and psychological alienation and the many neuroses that afflict affluent societies are attributable in part to spiritual factors. A prosperous society, highly developed in material terms, but weighing heavily on the soul is not of itself conducive to authentic development. The new forms of slavery to drugs and the lack of hope into which so many people fall can be explained not only in psychological and sociological terms, but also in essentially spiritual terms. The emptiness in which the soul feels abandoned despite its availability of countless therapies for body and psyche leads to suffering. This is the world we live in where we are trying to fill this unfillable desire for more and we look all around us for whatever will fill it. Well, I would argue that Thanksgiving is a much better place to look. Thanksgiving can fill your senses with the smell of food, fill your sight with the spread in front of you, with the people around you. It can fill your heart with gratitude as you go around the table and say what you're thankful for. Thanksgiving helps us become part of something bigger than ourselves and we become more accountable to ourselves, to others, and we get a little less weird and a little closer to God. You know, I like to think about the different symbols that you see at Thanksgiving. So you see the beautiful turkey, which is a symbol of God's providence, right? You saw the quail mentioned over and over again in the Old Testament as a symbol of God's providence. Well, here we have a turkey at our Thanksgiving table symbolizing the same thing, right? Same message in America as in the Sinai desert. You have the mashed potatoes, which I think are a very earthy example of labor. Adam was told that he would have to live by the sweat of his brow and pull his sustenance from the earth. Well, what's a potato? But it's something that you eat that you have to pull out of the ground itself. It's a very down to earth kind of vegetable. Then I like to think about the symbolism of cranberry sauce. How so, you ask? Well, the bitter herbs at the Seder meal that the Jewish people ate were supposed to remind them of the tears that their forefathers suffered for them. Cranberry sauce is a bitter fruit that we eat on our Thanksgiving table that we can think of the same thing. The pumpkin pie is especially a good symbol of Catholicism in America. How, you might ask? Well, the pie was created in the Middle Ages by Catholics, the new delicacy of the West, and Americans filled it with the pumpkin, which is not found anywhere else in the world. So pumpkin pie is this marriage of the old world and the new world, that's a symbol of what the church should be in America. And then you think of that first Thanksgiving dinner that's, I know, a little bit made up, a little legendary, but Uh, It's still a wonderful symbol with the Indians and the pilgrims sitting together at a Thanksgiving table to share together the blessings of the new world. And you think of the church in America, the two first native born saints in America. The one born here first was of course St. Kateri Tekakwitha, who is a native American, who was from upstate New York. And then you have St. Elizabeth Ann Seton, who was born in 1774 in New York City. So you have in the church these two symbols, one of the Indians, one of the pilgrims, that we can think of in our Catholic homes as the founders of our Thanksgiving. So be grateful for your home this Thanksgiving. Be grateful for this island of light and pagandom that the Catholic Church talks about. Be thankful for this school of virtue that happens, yes, even around your Thanksgiving table. Be thankful for the faith and how it has taken root in America and look around your table to notice both the symbols of the season, the symbols of faith that are at your table, and also the human beings that are only there because of the sacrifice of so many that came before you. And thanks for listening. I'm Tom Hoops, and this is the Catholic Living Podcast produced by Ex Corte at Benedictine College in Atchison, Kansas. Our mission is to produce media that will transform culture in America, To Benedictine's mission of community, faith, and scholarship, visit us at xcordi.org.